Shabbat Shalom. On the movie review website, Rotten Tomatoes, the 2014 blockbuster movie titled Noah, featuring Russell Crowe, was awarded 76% on the tomato meter. Critics applauded its musical score, expansive imagery, and the masterful resurrection of ancient themes now cast in modern light. Meanwhile, the audience reviews amounted to a measly 41%. Overblown epic, grandiose filmmaking. In other words, feh. Interestingly, Rabbinic commentary on Parashat Noach is not so far off in posting their own set of mixed reviews. Understandably, the rabbinic focus was less on the scope of the production and more attuned to the protagonist, to the flawless, albeit limited, and perhaps fanatical hero after whom this week's Torah portion is named. The rabbis were thankful that Noah was righteous in the midst of corruption and deceit. They laud his efforts to schlep on the animals two by two, to endure close to a year sealed up in that ark until dry land appeared, to care for the animals with compassion, to worship God with sacrifice and gratitude upon egress. But the rabbis are also quick to judge. Was he that great? Why did he not try to save others before boarding the boat? Look at Abraham, who chose to argue with God to save Sodom and Gomorrah. Rashi, an 11th century Torah commentator, lays out the two sides of the Noah debate. There are those among the sages who view Noah positively. And certainly, had Noah been living in a generation of just individuals, he would have been even more just. And yet, others view him negatively. Had he been living in the generation of Abraham, Noah would have been considered worthless. One approach speaks to the context and to the power of community. The other, to a belief that a person contains a fixed amount of righteousness that she or he is able or willing to practice regardless of the time and space in which she or he finds him or herself in. To the positive, Noah was good, and he might have been even better had he felt the positive influence of friends, family, and neighbors. Many of us know this to be true. When we surround ourselves with good and righteous people, we get better. This is why we belong to Temple. This is why we pay for gym memberships. This is why we like book groups. Community creates accountability. Simply put, we are better when we are together. This rabbinic approach also identifies a dynamic quality or characteristic within Noah and likely within all human beings. It says that we can grow and change. We are not fixed entities. Our capacity for righteousness is not preset or predetermined. On the other hand, there are those who doubt Noah's capacity to learn and grow and lead, even when surrounded by great leaders like Abraham. Even if Noah had lived next door to Abraham, oy, the comparison, they say, would have been brutal. Noah's righteousness would have been deemed worthless. 
Tamim haya bedorotav, says the Torah. Blameless in his generation, sure. But tamim also means simple, also means impotent. Like the tam from Passover, when we recount the third of the fourth children. And then there's this truth. If we look closer at the Torah, we see there's no record of Noah's efforts to engage the community in tshuva. Even Jonah, who ran away on a boat, still finds his way back to Nineveh to help the community avert God's decree. Noah does no harm, but he also does no good. Consequently, the value of his righteousness depreciates by the time of Abraham, and there's no opportunity to rebuild its worth. So which feels true to you? Are we born with a fixed amount of righteousness and capacity to express it? Or is our potential without limit? Noah was a righteous man. It says so right there in the Torah. Yet our tradition sits uneasily with this simple reading of the text. Perhaps it is because when we pull back from our focus on this one line and this debate that ensues, Perhaps when we pull back from the charming image of animals marching, slithering, or hopping onto the ark, we see the broader picture of destruction, an absence of divine mercy, unnecessary cruelty, even fanaticism. Richard Brody, in reviewing the movie for The New Yorker in 2014, notes that the director, Darren Aronofsky, was obsessed with this story beginning at age 13, and he never grew out of this intense, formative relationship with this origin myth. And it's understandable. As Brody writes, the story of Noah is, first of all, a near apocalypse in which God kills off almost everybody, and the terrifying scale of divine wrath along with the awesome burden of the few remaining people who confront it, must have had a shattering effect on the young Aronofsky. The awesome burden of the few remaining people who confront it. It couldn't have been easy for Noah, though we'd never know it from the simple reading of the text. God says, build the boat, the floods are coming, and Noah agrees. We have no backstory, no late-night conversation caught on tape. At least with Abraham, we have a midrash about his childhood, the young protege who smashed his father's idols. We know nothing about Noah. We don't have a sense of his marriage. His wife doesn't even have a name. She's simply referred to as Eshet Noah, the wife of Noah. We rely on midrash to identify her as Naamah. We don't know what it was like to parent young children in a corrupt world to provide for his family. We don't even know when his community slid into evil or exploitation. Did he watch it slowly disintegrate day by day, or was this the only reality he ever knew? Pirkei Avot, an early first century commentary, teaches us that in a place where there are no righteous people, you struggle to be a righteous person. Note the language. You struggle. It takes effort to be righteous when no one else seems interested, when it feels too intimidating to speak out, when the easier path is just to blend in with the masses. If you thought last week's news cycle was hard, now we have to make space for this week's lead story. A landmark report from the United Nations Scientific Panel on Climate Change paints a far more dire picture of the immediate consequences of climate change than previously thought. 
and says that avoiding the damage requires transforming the world economy at a speed and scale that has no documented historic precedent. It's an eerie week in the Jewish calendar to receive predictions of global devastation in the secular press. Food shortages, wildfires, inundated coastlines, intensified droughts and poverty. And still, all this we know, all this we've heard before, but right in front of us is the easier path. Avoid, defer, demure, at times, deny. We wouldn't be alone. So many people struggle to understand the impact of climate change and what individuals can do, let alone what corporations and countries must change in order to make a difference. In a place where there are no righteous people, you struggle to be a righteous person. You. Frankly, it doesn't matter what other people do. You are expected to act differently, to aspire to be something more, even if there are no role models and no obvious reward, even when you are not sure you are ready. Nachshon, the hero of Midrash who walked into the Red Sea until the waters parted, could have only taken so many classes on the likelihood of divine intervention at the shores of the sea before realizing it was now or never. Was he inherently brave? Was it easier for him to walk into the water than for others who perhaps were limited by their fixed capacity, no matter time or space? Or was Nachshon strengthened and emboldened by his unique context and the community that surrounded him? In a place where there are no righteous people, you struggle to be a righteous person. Like most children, I remember trying to win arguments with my mother by telling her what the other kids in school were allowed to do. They watched TV during the week. They ate Doritos. They cursed. They played spin the bottle and rode bikes without helmets. It didn't matter. She said the same thing you probably told your own children. This is how we do things in our home, on our terms. And while I thought that the lesson to be learned was about obedience or in adherence to family rules in the long run, it may have also been a lesson in how to endure, how to persevere, how to reach for righteousness out of the muck and mire of everyday life, how to stand up even if everyone else remains seated, how to be confident and strong, how not to wither in the face of mockery or peer pressure, how not to despair, and how to bear the grief of loneliness when you do choose to stand apart. And in addition to obedience, these are all valuable lessons. And I wonder in our adult lives, when do we have time to learn or relearn these lessons? When do we make time for our endurance, strength, and power training so that we have what it takes in the moment to stand alone if needed, to pull away from the masses and to endure the feelings of fear and yearning? This week, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley announced her resignation. Pundits on the left said she was better than most actors in the administration, maybe even the best of the bunch. It's hard not to hear the rabbinic critique of Noah in these backhanded compliments. He, too, was the best of the bunch, which isn't saying much in a generation that practiced illicit sex and idolatry as a national pastime. 
Two weeks ago, as U.S. senators looked to be voting along party lines in favor of confirming Judge Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court, Senator Jeff Flake set himself apart by asking for a delay so that the FBI could further investigate the allegations of sexual assault. Many of us held our breath, wondering if this could be the start of a new conversation, a bipartisan effort in support of Dr. Blasey Ford's testimony and others who had begun to come forward with their stories. As Senator Flake indicated, this process was ripping our country apart and a new path was necessary if we hoped to move forward together. And in the week leading up to the vote, there were those who debated, was he truly righteous or was it the appearance of righteousness only when compared to others in his generation, to his peers in the Senate? Just like our ancestors' close analysis of Noah and his motivations, we've spent hours examining the actions of our leaders, trying to decide if they are dynamic in their practice of righteousness. Are they able to increase and give more if only they might be inspired by those around them? Or are they but momentary flashes of righteousness, just the standouts in what then Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton regrettably called a basket of deplorables? Drawing on the wisdom of our tradition, I have to say, I'm not sure that the debate about the depth and the value of anyone's righteousness advances the conversation if we are looking to respond sooner rather than later to the crises of our world, climate change, a pervasive culture of sexual harassment and violence against women, ongoing discrimination against LGBTQIA individuals and families, the denigration of immigrants and refugee and asylum seekers, and you know the list goes on. Rashi said, there are two schools of thought. Either we're static in our growth, or we rise higher when those around us are reaching as well. On this Shabbat of Parashat Noach, let us refocus the story on the struggle that each one of us encounters as we reach for righteousness, and not the question of whether we started out with a fixed amount of virtue. Let us look to the lessons of newfound strength and capacity that can be discovered in community, rather than the comparison and competition of who reaches higher. And these are the questions that can guide us as we refocus and reframe. How do each of us maintain the struggle to reach for righteousness when the easier path lies before us? How do we bear the burden of setting ourselves apart when it triggers fear and loneliness? And once we begin to think about what will inspire each one of us to overcome those obstacles and to reach out for righteousness, then let us begin to ask, what will help our elected leaders to reach for righteousness alongside of us and not take the easier, more predictable, politically safe path? What is true for Noah is true for each one of us. This is hard work, and our desire to reach out for what is hard means we need a fierce and enduring commitment to remain uncertain and uncomfortable. That commitment is best held in community. Brian Stevenson, the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, often reminds people that the pathways to justice, the pathways to doing the hard, hard work of building a more just and equitable world require getting uncomfortable and doing what is inconvenient. There is no way to change the world, he says, 
if we aren't willing to confront the pain and the brokenness of human beings and the injustices that have been inflicted on so many. We have to get out of our comfort zones and take a risk to move beyond what is safe for us. That's the work no one wants to do. But it is the work that is required if we hope to see the system change at a speed and a scale that has no documented historic precedent. Like our ancestors, we are trying to understand the struggle to be righteous and to be fair and to be good and to be just in an age when it is easier to be lazy and unengaged or simply to be counted as one of the masses. To go unseen, not to be held accountable. We hope Temple Isaiah is different. Here you are held and cherished and welcomed in, but you are not released from responsibility. Here you learn the skills to act together, and here you learn how to reach for righteousness alongside of others. Tonight, we reach for righteousness together as we learn about the propositions on the November ballot, thanks to the League of Women Voters, and we allow ourselves to become more informed voters. Perhaps tonight is the night that you decide to hold a ballot party of your own before Election Day, helping to build knowledge, confidence, and capacity through community. Tonight, we reach for righteousness as we consider again the pathways to justice we might pursue this fall, support for SOVA and PATH, for mentoring students at University High School, for strategizing the next steps to stand by immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers, and for joining the Green Team on November 2nd following Shabbat services, when Jessica Dabney and Jim Winnett, two of our congregants, will discuss their learnings from Al Gore's recent climate change conference. At a time in our world, and particularly in our country, when there is so much despair and outrage, and the values and the institutions of our democracy that we hold dear seem so much under assault, there are ways to make positive change in the world. It begins with a story of struggle, to reach for righteousness even when the preferred path is corruption and crime. It begins with a belief in our capacity to grow and change and not to surrender our agency to zero-sum rationale. And most importantly, as Rashi indicated in the 11th century, positive change bets on the power of community to hold us accountable and to lift us even higher. Here at Temple Isaiah, may this be the story we tell on this Shabbat and on every Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom.